Our text this morning is Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred, he fathered Arkbashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkbashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. Also, if you received a liturgy guide when you came in, I want to invite you to get that out as a place to take notes. There's actually a, uh, a page in there that would be helpful, not only for children, but, you know, we made it for children and students, um, but adults as well that's, that's guided by questions. So there's specific questions that you can answer as you listen to the sermon. Um, I'll, I'll never forget the Sunday that my grandmother challenged me to take notes during church. And I think, if I just trace my spiritual journey back, I think that moment changed my life. I, I really do. She, she just, one, one day out in the parking lot, just said, hey, during church, I want you to listen, and I want you to write down what you hear, and then I want you to bring back what you wrote and show it to me. And I just, I... I took that so seriously. I mean, I listened to every single thing the preacher said. I wrote down a bunch of stuff. I had no clue what I was writing down. I didn't know what half of it meant, but I wrote it down, and I started taking, I started a habit of just taking notes during sermons. I really believe that that moment changed my life, and I think she only asked me to do that one time, so uh, I want to encourage you, um, children, you know, um, adults, <laughs> uh, Take notes, not because I have anything special to say, but because the Spirit does move through the preaching of the Word. And so I want to encourage you to take notes if, um, if you can. We are finishing up our Genesis series here, our Genesis 1 through 11 series. Next week, we're going to begin Advent. But before we do that, we need to wrap this up. So we finished the Noah narrative, and now we have two chapters left. And I know that Gayla is really thankful we didn't ask her to read Genesis chapter 10, um, because Genesis chapter 10 is another lengthy genealogy. But in Genesis 10, we do learn something really important, or what we see something really important. We see that the sons of Noah and, and their descendants scattered across the face of the earth. 
It's scattered across the face of the earth. And when you are reading through Genesis for the first time and you come to Genesis 9 and you see once again there's this covenant that's established with Noah and there's this mandate that's given to Noah to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, the same mandate that was given to Adam. And then you get to chapter 10 and you start to see people are multiplying and they are filling the earth. We have all these regions that are discussed in chapter 10. And so it looks like humanity has finally gotten it, you know, right. Maybe not perfectly, but they're doing what the Lord has asked to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so we're given this glimmer of hope in Genesis 10. But then Genesis 11 comes in, and it is such a buzzkill to the perceived hope of Genesis 10. It, Genesis 11, 1 through 9 shows us the reason that Noah's descendants scattered across the face of the earth. And it was not because they just really wanted to obey God. It, it's not out of love that they, they spread to the ends of the earth. Instead, the Lord had to intervene. He had to step in, and in an act of judgment and mercy, he dispersed the people throughout the ends of the earth. Once again, here in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, we see the pattern emerge that we've seen throughout Genesis 1 through 11. That pattern of divine mandate or, or divine design followed up by human sin, human rebellion, and then God's response. And every single time so far through Genesis 1 through 11, God has responded in two ways, with judgment and with mercy. The building of the city and Tower of Babel represents so much more than just an ambitious construction project that went wrong. The construction of this city and tower revealed three things. Human rebellion, a just and merciful response from God, and a glorious reversal of events. So we have a very nice Baptist sermon here, okay? We're going to look at three aspects of this passage. We're going to look first at the rebellion of mankind. Second, we're going to look at the response of God. And third, we're going to look at a grand and glorious reversal, all right, so, so first let's start with human rebellion. Now, this is really important to just, just know from the start. This is going to be a main theme throughout this sermon. The building of Babel, both the city and the tower, is all about human pride. That's what it's all about. It's all about human pride. If you look at Genesis 11, 1 through 4, and I don't know the last time you've read this story. It's a really familiar story. I know that most everyone in here is familiar with the Tower of Babel. But I read it again this, this past week to start my sermon prep, and as I was reading it, I, you know, it struck me, what's, what's the problem, you know? The Lord responds with judgment, but what's the real problem here? Look, look at verse 1 with me, for example. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, that's the description of what's happening in Babel. I mean, outside of let's make a name for ourselves, we, I mean, you know, that's not great. But, but even that phrase, when our favorite athletes say stuff like that, oh, we love it, don't we? It's like, you know, your favorite, you know, professional team drafts a player and it's like, hey, listen, I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to make a name for myself in this league. And we're like, yeah, that's right. Bring it on, you know. Our first thought isn't, you prideful jerk, 
you know? Why, how could you say something like that? Or, you know, your, your favorite college team gets a new recruit in. Like, you want them to have that, you know, drive and, and motor. Uh, so we read these first verses and, I don't know, one people, one language, building a city, building a tower, want to make a name for themselves, okay. And then listen to how the Lord responds. So it says the Lord came down to see it, and then in verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And I don't know, it just, it feels like, why, why is the Lord so upset? What's the issue here? You see, whenever you start interpreting a passage, we teach this in teaching lab here at Trace, you need to start by doing two things. First, you need to observe. Just when you see a passage, just make observations. What's, what's happening here? What's being said? What do you see? What do you, literally, just look at it and then write down what you see. Make observations. And then second is to interrogate the text, ask questions. I started sermon prep this past week with Jude, and actually when Gala started reading the passage, he, like, he was touching on me. He was like, hey, that's what we looked at this week. We read that this week. Jude started sermon prep with me, and so I asked him if he wanted to help me with some work, and um, he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, I did not expect him to say, yeah, I better think of something for him to do. Um, but we start, and I was like, okay, buddy, let's, let's read the passage. And so I start by reading. I read the first verse. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And I was like, now let's think of some good questions. What questions do we want to ask? And he said, he just, he was like, what language was it? You know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, know. I don't have a clue about that. Um, but that's, that's a good question. Uh, he also got down to verse, uh, where is it? Verse 3, where it says, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And he was like, yeah, I have a question why would they make bricks to just set on fire? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. And some of the translations would have helped him a lot where it says bake, you know, which makes a lot more sense. We got to look up a video, though, on how you make bricks, so that was really fun. Um, but th those are good questions. There are other really important questions here that can help us see what's really going on in Babel. The first is, what's so wrong about building a city and a tower? It's a good question. Like, don't let it just you know, escape you. Ask the question, what, what's so wrong about it? What's so bad about unity? You know, because the Lord seems to indicate that that's the problem. In verse 6, behold, they are one people. It's, it's almost as if that's a problem, and so it's a good question. I thought, does the Lord not want us to be one people? Is, is he upset about that? Okay, and then like, what's so bad about one common human language? Is, is there a problem? What, what is it? Well, the Lord responds to the building of the tower with confusion and dispersion, right? He confuses the languages, he disperses the people, and that, and that should be a little odd to us because as we're reading the rest of Genesis 1 through 11, what do we see God doing time and time again when he's not acting in judgment? Time and time again, the Lord is, is creating order out of chaos. He creates order out of chaos. And so here we see him creating chaos out of order, and, and it just surprises us a little bit. What's, what's really going on here? What's the real problem? Well, the problem was not that the people were unified. The problem was not that the people had one language. The problem was not that the people wanted to build a city. And the problem was not that the people wanted to even build a tower necessarily. The problem was their unified selfishness and their unified, arrogant rebellion against God. It was the motivation of their heart that was the problem in building the city and tower. Their problem was their re rebellion even against God's mandate to multiply and fill the earth. They wanted to stay in one place. That was the problem. So as we look at this text, 
we not only see a description of the people's actions, we get a glimpse into their motivations. And so what I want to do here as we think about their rebellion and, and their pride, I want to draw out three manifestations of the pride in Babel. Okay, so how, how did the pride of the Babylonians manifest itself? And, and I think we can see it in three ways. First, they pridefully desired security apart from God. So you notice it here in verse um, uh, four. In verse four, when, when they say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, you get the motivation in this, in this one phrase. Let us make a name for ourselves. And then the reason they want to make a name for themselves, the reason they want to build this great city and tower is because they are afraid of being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's what they don't want. The Lord wants that for them. He wants them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But they don't want that. They're afraid of it. It's something they don't want. They, they are afraid of being insecure. They, they built a city so that they would not be spread out all over the face of the earth, okay? So instead of obeying the Lord's command, they decide to fill up one city and stay in the same place. And the builders of this city believe that their new technology, the brick, and their social unity gave them enough confidence to be self-sufficient, Okay, the Lord's commanded us to go out. We don't think that's such a good idea. We can actually stay here and make a better way for ourselves. All right, so, so they, they desire security apart from God. All right, second, second manifestation of their pride. They desired glory apart from God. They built a tower with its top in the heavens. Why? So that they could make a name for themselves. Now, bearing the very image of God, that was not enough multiplying the image and glory of God across the face of the earth was not enough. The Babylonians wanted to be known and remembered, not just as those who bear the image of God. They don't want to share glory with God. They don't want to reflect the glory that only belongs to God. No, no, no. They want glory for themselves. They want to be known and they want to be remembered specifically for their own intelligence, their own ingenuity, their own strength, and their own wisdom. They wanted a self-made legacy. Okay, now third, third manifestation of pride in Babel. They pridefully desired to satisfy their spiritual hunger apart from God. And that's something that I hadn't really seen in this passage until this week. There is spiritual hunger here that they are trying to satisfy, ironically, apart from the only one who can fulfill it. And, and here's, here's what we know. We have to assume a little bit, but I think our assumptions are safe. It's most likely that this tower is what's known as a ziggurat. Now, a ziggurat, it's Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T if you're, if you're taking notes, a ziggurat, it was a tower, a Mesopotamian, you know, cultural thing. Uh, um, it was this tower that had steps that led all the way to the top. So, so the tower, you know, had steps that led all the way to the top, and at the top is where the worship would happen, okay? So that's where they would take their sacrifices, and they would, they would make sacrifices on the altar, and then the smoke would go up, and the thought was, when they make sacrifices at the top of the ziggurat, at the top of the tower, the gods would meet them at the top of the tower. So it was almost like, you know, kind of meeting halfway, you know, with, with the gods. They, they believed that the gods would, would come down and, and meet them. It was an attempt in one sense, not only to make a name for themselves, but the tower was an attempt to get to heaven. It was an attempt to meet with God. Now, how, how do these three manifestations of pride show up in our lives? 
And this is where I'd love to just stop the sermon and, and have, a, have a whole group discussion. Because pride manifests itself in so many different ways. We are creatively prideful as, as humans. But I do want to offer three suggestions here. So as you think about the desire for security, pride in our hearts leads us to depend on ourselves for security, not God. We all feel insecure sometimes. There are times in our lives where we just, for whatever reason, we feel insecure. Fear, uncertainty, and a feeling of a lack of control in our lives leads to insecurity almost every single time. You know, when you don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring, you know, when you don't know what you should do in a difficult situation, when you, when you just feel unsure of yourself, every single time we are tempted to compensate for that weakness because we don't like to feel weak. We don't like to feel weak. We don't like to feel vulnerable. We don't like to feel like things are slipping out of our control. We don't like to feel like people are looking at us, expecting us to do something, and then not knowing what to do. We don't like feeling mortal and finite. It makes us feel small and afraid. And so in these moments, in order to regain a sense of security, we will even create false realities that we convince ourselves are true. You know, we do, just a light example, we do that as sports fans all the time, okay? Kentucky got beat by 60 yesterday, and I'm seeing like, you know, Kentucky, you know, football aficionados on Twitter, and they're just like, look, but, you know, you notice that when our quarterback, our young freshman quarterback went in at the end of the game, he got some real experience there, some real, and it's like, you can't admit, this is terrible, you know? It's awful. You, you create this false reality that things are not as bad as they really are because you feel safer in that space. When in reality, what you should do when you feel insecure is you should run to God for security. You should run to God for refuge. You should depend on him when you feel like everything else around you is falling apart. But pride leads us to try to depend on ourselves. Okay, something else pride does. Pride in our hearts leads us to glory in ourselves, not God. Glory in ourselves, we strive to create legacies for ourselves apart from obedience to God. Sometimes we even create legacies for ourselves through disobedience to God. We're obsessed. Maybe, maybe I'm just obsessed. I don't know. But I, I believe most of us are obsessed with how other people perceive us. We're obsessed with what other people think of us. And we want to be known. We're, we're a lot like the people of Babel. We do want to be known. We want to be appreciated. We, we want to be valued. We, we want people to remember us. We want to be loved. We want to be honored. And, and again, with the right motivation, these desires can be good. For example, is it a bad thing to want to leave a good legacy for your family? It's not bad. It's a good thing. You know, a good question to even ask of yourself is, you know, when people hear my family name in this city, what do they think of? What do they think of? I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's a question you ask when you're thinking about the legacy you want to leave for your children, for your grandchildren. It's, it's good. It's not bad. Uh, it's, it, you know, in step with Christian living. But when a desire to leave a good legacy becomes a desire to simply make a name for yourself, you've turned inward and pride has taken over. Pride pollutes all good desires. If you desire to be known and remembered, 
Your pride will lead you to do whatever it takes to make that happen, no matter how destructive. But pride does one more thing. It did it in in Babel, it does it here in Tupelo. Pride in our hearts leads us to seek salvation in ourselves, or at the very least, apart from God. Pride in our hearts leads us to seek salvation apart from God. And we do this in two ways. And you may be thinking to yourself right now, okay, I can check out now. This doesn't apply to me. This would only be for someone who's not a believer. I'll send them the podcast later. But listen, there are two ways to seek salvation apart from God. Two ways. Here's the first. Believing that you don't need to be saved. That's how you seek salvation apart from God. You don't, you don't believe you need to be saved. And that's where we're all tempted in this room. Growing up, if, if you grew up as a Christian, you, this is where you are. This is, this is in, in, in your wheelhouse right here. You think you don't need to be saved. You're a good person. You do the right things. You're honest at work. You try to make a good life for your family. You're doing all the right things. You don't need to be saved. You're good. You're good. It's so easy for us, even people who remind one another of the gospel every single week, it's so easy for us to fall into that mindset that we don't need God to save us. And the reality is we do. So what happens whenever you don't need God to save you is worship becomes no more than a religious monument to your pride. Okay, but there's another way that you seek salvation apart from God. And pride leads us to do this. It's believing that you can't be saved. So you either believe that you don't need to be saved or you believe that you can't be saved. And so when you believe that, you just try to earn your way to God. I have a good friend, a good friend that I have been sharing the gospel with for five years now who will not trust in Jesus. He will not trust in Jesus because he doesn't believe he is good enough to trust in Jesus. He doesn't believe he is good enough to be a Christian. He, deep down, does not believe he can be saved. And so he's going to keep striving and keep working to be better, whether it's drinking less, cursing less, whatever it is, you know, whatever his thing is that he has. And it's, it'll never be enough. He, he, he doesn't believe he can't, he doesn't believe that God can just unilaterally save him through a work of his own. He has to contribute in some way, and so that's what he tries to do. And that's what pride leads us to do, to not depend on God for security, to, to try to seek glory for ourselves, and then finally to try to save ourselves. How does the Lord respond to all of this? How does he respond to this, this prideful mess in Babel? There's a very clear divine response. The text tells us, if you look in verse 6, oh, I'm sorry, verse 5, that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And, and, then, and then we find out what he does. But the Lord comes down. That's the first thing that he does. That's the first way that he responds. And of course, obviously, there's some irony here, Right? You've got the people in Babel, and they're building this, this massive tower with its, with its top in the heavens. And it says, and the Lord decided he was going to come down to see it. 
You know, there's very clear irony here. But there's also a couple obvious observations that may be easy for us to overlook. The first is that God saw all the pride in Babel, which means that God sees everything that happens on the earth. He sees everything. He sees your public sins, your public pride. He sees your private sins, your private pride. He sees it all. He sees the the thoughts that are within your head. He sees the motivations of your heart. The Lord sees there is nothing hidden from his sight. But second, what we see here in the fact that the Lord came down to Babel is that the Lord cares. You notice this? You know, we we tend in in modern day America just to kind of have this approach of like, I'm gonna live my life and you kind of live your life and it's none of my business what you're, you're doing over there. I don't really care how you live your life as long as it doesn't interfere with mine. The Lord cares. He cares about how humans are living. He cares about how we live our lives. If he didn't, if he was uninvolved or if he was uninterested, he would not respond at all. So the Lord comes down. And then what does he do? He does two things. He confuses the language of the people and he disperses the people across the face of the earth. This single action, or these these two actions are really a single action that uh, uh, that contains both judgment and mercy. It contains both punishment and prevention. So so let's, let's think about that for just a second. First, judgment. God punished the people of Babel. He punished them by ending their building project, by, by dispersing them across the face of the earth. And of course, you know, I, I don't really know what all this looked like. What did it look like for the Lord to confuse their languages? You know, was it some dramatic event, kind of the anti-Pentecost where the Spirit maybe comes down and just confuses everyone's language all in a moment? Or I don't know, maybe, maybe everybody was sleeping and then they woke up the next morning and it was like they were all watching a foreign film, you know, without the subtitles, you know, and they're just, what? You know, and they're just confused. I, I, I don't know exactly what it looked like. What I do know is that God thwarted their attempt to make a name for themselves. And he did it by disrupting their social power. He did it by disrupting their misuse of technological advancement. And he did it by disrupting their misplaced worship. And, and he judged them simply because they were blaspheming him. They had rebelled against him. John Calvin, he puts it this way, as soon as mortals forget who they are and inflate their own importance, they become like giants who wage war with God. And that's really what's going on here. It's outright rebellion. Part of God's creation, mankind, turned against heaven and declared war. And, you know, obviously, they also were, were refusing to, to, to fill the earth. They were refusing the mandate given to them by God. They wanted to localize God's plan for globalization. And so instead of God's will being accomplished through their glad obedience, God's will would be accomplished in spite of their disobedience. Instead of filling the earth through glad relational obedience to the Lord, humanity fills the earth through an act of judgment from God. It's it's tragic. And and here's a little side note to that. We have been given a mandate too. A lot like Adam, a lot like Noah, a lot like all of these descendants here. We have been given a mandate to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We've been given a mandate to live on mission 
as witnesses of the gospel here in Tupelo, everywhere we go to the ends of the earth. And, you know, there's a guarantee that every single tribe and tongue will one day receive the gospel. It's going to happen. The, the glory of the Lord is going to spread and cover every corner of the earth. It's certain. God's mission will be accomplished. Here's the question for us as a local church. Will God's mission be accomplished through us and through our obedience, or will it be accomplished in spite of our disobedience? Because there is no doubt the Lord's mission will be accomplished. But will it be accomplished through us, or will it be accomplished in spite of us? Will we as individuals align our lives with the mission of God, or will we miss out on the blessing and joy and glory of seeing lost people in our city and around the world come to faith in Jesus? So the Lord judges the people of Babel, but he also shows them so much mercy. So much mercy. And, and it's so easy to miss this when you look at this passage. It feels like judgment, right? It feels like judgment. They're, they're you know, uniting in rebellion against God, and the Lord disperses them, and he confuses their language. It feels like judgment, but there's so much mercy. God did not allow them to continue building upon their pride. He let them go so far, and then he said, no more. I mean, he literally brought them low when, when he could have just simply said, go ahead, go ahead. A unified humanity in rebellion against God doesn't pose a threat to God, but rather poses a dangerous threat to itself. You see, when I read this passage, it feels like the Lord is, you know, concerned. It feels like he's so concerned that the people are building this tower. And, you know, if, if you read it a little immaturely, maybe, you look at it and you're like, is the Lord afraid they're going to, like, reach heaven? You know? And so he's like, we got to stop this. This is a problem. It'll be impossible. Like, nothing that they do will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible for them if we don't come down and stop them. It's almost as if, you know, they're going to be banging on heaven's gates by Christmas or something. You know, the Lord's not threatened by Babel at all. He's not threatened by their pride. But Babel posed a great threat to itself. Do you see this? Do you see the mercy in the Tower of Babel seen here? A culture that is driven by pride will self-destruct even as it builds. This is true of nations. This is true of workplaces. It's true of teams, and it's true of churches. Pride is self-centered. Pride is self-serving, and every single time, pride will lead to self-destruction. I promise you, if I could ever guarantee you of something, I promise you right now, if we each develop a my way or the highway approach to life in this local church, if it's my way or the highway and we each adopt that as our mantra, we will self-destruct. I can promise you that. We will self-destruct. But in God's mercy, in God's mercy, he shows us another way. The answer to this pride that would cause us to implode is mutual submission to one another. We must continue to not only submit to God, but to mutually submit to one another. And the point here from Genesis 11 
is that God responds to prideful rebellion, not just with judgment, but with mercy. What a gift of grace it was that God broke up the pride that was building in Babel. It demonstrated God's faithfulness to his covenant with Noah. It demonstrated the prominence of God's common grace that the world is not as bad as it could be. But for God's grace, no human would be limited in how much they would build on their pride. And yet the Lord steps in here and he stops it. He is so merciful. But that's not the good news of Genesis 11. The good news is what Genesis 11 ultimately points to. There's a grand reversal that that we look forward to. You see, although God created mankind to live in harmony and unity with him and with one another, they chose to unite with one another in rebellion against him. And then the Lord responded by dispersing them throughout the earth. However, one day, all will be set right. Now, it wouldn't come until after the resurrection of Jesus. It wouldn't come until after the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost that we see in Acts 2. It wouldn't be until that day that language barriers would be overcome and the nations would flock to the hill and city of the Lord. You see, this this advent of God on Babel, this coming down of the Lord, foreshadowed a future coming down of God. The incarnation, the coming of Christ, signaled the end of division and it signaled the fulfillment of the promise that was made to all nations divided humanity would be reunited as one in Christ. The nations would flock to the city of God. Heaven's gates are wide open for any and all who are dispersed physically throughout the earth and dispersed spiritually. Those who are in our city who are dispersed spiritually, the gates of the kingdom of heaven are wide open. And there is no need to meet our God halfway. There's no need to build a tower and to hope that he would meet us halfway. He came all the way down to redeem us. In Zephaniah 3, there's a a beautiful prophecy of the reversal of what happened at Babel. Uh, You can turn there later. I'll, I'll read it for you. This is what the prophet said. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Unity is coming back in Christ. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. What hope! It goes on to say, For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge. Where? In the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." You see, the hopelessness, the confusion, the division at Babel was not the final word from God. It's not the end of the story. The resurrection and the ascension of Christ, along with the coming of the Holy Spirit, is a guarantee that even though God confused the languages and dispersed the people over the face of the earth, he has always intended to bring people from all corners of the earth back to his holy city, back to himself. The day is coming when all pride will be destroyed. The day is coming where perfect unity will be 
restored among the nations. And and while the people of Babel built on their own pride, as they sought to reach heaven through their city and through their tower, one day the city of God will not be built by the hands of men. One day the city of God will come down from heaven and her gates will be wide open. Listen to this from Revelation 21. This is what we have to look forward to. This is our hope. The Apostle John writes this, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. As we long for this glorious glorious day of renewal this glorious day may we daily forsake the proud dreams of Babel and seek refuge in the city of God where true and lasting security and glory are found